Hi, this is Dave Douglas, and this is the Greenleaf Music Podcast, A Noise from the Deep. And that was the music of trumpeter Jimmy Owens and his band with Kenny Barron from 1967. That composition is entitled, You Had Better Listen. NEA jazz master Jimmy Owens is a New Yorker born and bred, so naturally we met downtown for this conversation. Jimmy was very generous with his time and his wisdom here, and I'm very grateful for the opportunity to interview him. Jimmy Owens is also being celebrated by the Festival of New Trumpet Music this year. The festival is an annual New York-based platform for all sorts of new music on the instrument. Jimmy and his group will play at the Glass Box Theater at 55 West 13th Street on September 8th at 3 p.m. Jimmy will receive the festival's award of recognition, play a set with his quartet, and be joined by four trumpeters he mentored as a teacher. As always, you can email me and you can support the Greenleaf Music community at greenleafmusic.com. Please support the show and come and join us as a subscriber. We really appreciate it. And here is more Jimmy Owens. So, yeah, we're in New York, as you can hear from the background noise. Jimmy Owens, thank you so much for joining me. Dave, thank you for inviting me. Well, you're going to be featured on the Festival of New Trumpet Music, which we've wanted to do for a long time. And so this year, uh, you're getting the award from our community of recognition for everything that you've given us and continue to give us. uh, And it means a lot. And I'm very excited about the fact that I'm going to have four guest trumpet players who were former students of mine at the new school. Yeah. And they're all very fine players, and they're all out there making a living, 
making great music right now. Nobate Isles, mm-hmm. who I taught since he when he was 14. He's 40-something now, mm-hmm. you know. He was my one of my first students, and uh, I related to him because Donald Byrd related to me when I was 14 and 15 to teach me. Mm. So I wanted to give Nobate the kind of love that Donald Byrd gave me to teach me how to play this instrument. That's beautiful. And then we have Jonathan Finlayson. Yep. Uh, Keon Carroll. Yeah. And then Linda Brasenio. Mm -hmm. All very fine trumpet players that were students at the new school. Yeah, that's going to be some concert. Yeah. So going back to when you were 14, I just... Just to put a little bit of context, I know you, your bio is, you talked about this many times, but as I was listening to that record, uh, You Had Better Listen, mm-hmm. that you made with Kenny Barron in 1967. Right. So you would have been a young man. Oh, yeah. 22? I was, 20, I was 23. Uh, 23. Yeah, it was probably, you know, what we wanted to do, we wanted to... Me and Kenny, we wanted to record this album when everybody was 19. We didn't get that to happen, unfortunately. But You couldn't get a deal. No, we couldn't get, get, get a deal. So we did that uh, Atlantic record, and both Kenny and I look a lot different now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm, sh- I'm sure you're still in touch. Oh, yes. I mean, and that was play. a special relationship. Yeah. But uh, the context also of you being on the scene and kind of playing with everyone in yeah. that moment. And right? I have to tell you, Kenny was working with Dizzy Gillespie and along with Chris White. Right. Bass and Rudy Collins drums. Uh I was working with Lionel Hampton. I would bump into them on the road with Mingus, Mm -hmm. with Hank Crawford. We were bumping into each other all the time. They were still working with Dizzy. Mm -hmm. So just quickly then, when when did your professional career begin, as you consider it? Well... I mean, I could honestly say my professional career began in 1960, which you would have been 17. 17, Uh because I was in a band called the Newport Youth Band. Oh, okay. That was presented by the Newport Jazz Festival that George Ween was involved with, and he had gotten the educator Marshall Brown to put together these bands. And this is how you met Booker Little. This is exactly that, it. During the Cliff Walk right. uh, mm-hmm. episode. And exactly. that's probably when you met Mingus, too. That was, that was uh, the year that there was the riot, 1960. Mm-hmm. And there, was two, there were two jazz festivals happening at Newport. The Newport Jazz Festival and a festival that Max Roach, Charles Mingus put together at another site in Newport called the Cliff Walk Hotel. Mm-hmm. So 
after we played with the Newport Youth Band, and that was a very, very special thing, and I should get you a recording, I have it, of the work that Marshall Brown commissioned Ernie Wilkins to write a piece for Cannonball Adderley and Andy Marsala, the alto saxophonist in the Mm -hmm. Newport Youth Band. And we recorded that. We performed that up at Newport. We performed it two times, actually. Then the riot happened, and that stopped the Newport Festival. Mm-hmm. But Cliff Walk Manor was still going on. I see. So I was able to so go went over, over there, there yeah. and check out <clears throat> you know, Max Roach and his group, who Booker was playing with. Right. And that's how you sort of entered the scene. Yeah. As a player, you met a lot of people. Yes. You were living in New York already. and Born uh, and raised. Yeah. So you just jumped right in at 17. Exactly. So I'm jumping right in in 1967, <laughs> a few years later. But, uh, you know, it, 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 it's always interesting to me, you know, when, when you said that was your first record that you and Kenny had been yeah. able to get and mm-hmm. then you make that first record and people say oh he's new on the scene and you realize well we've been doing this band for four yeah. years and right. we just finally got the deal so you were a seasoned player yeah i was also uh moody was supposed to be on that record mm. and he had agreed to do it and he rehearsed with us but then dizzy went out of town now, this, Kenny had left Dizzy Gillespie by that time. Mm-hmm. So Dizzy went out of town, and we decided to use Benny Maupin. Sounds amazing, amazing on this record. Amazing, yes. Really wonderful, yeah. And I have to confess, I didn't really know this record very well, so mm-hmm. it was a pleasure to hear it. There's another one that uh, I had heard years ago, and I sort of forgot that it existed, this Jackie Byard record. Oh, yes. That you played on in the same year. Yeah, I did a lot of recording. On the Spot. Yeah, On the Spot. That was the name of that album by Jackie Byard. But what was happening is that in 1967, I won the downbeat poll for talent deserving wider recognition or something like that. So I was... In 67. Yeah. Uh-huh. So that changed some things, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, Opened a lot of people doors. were getting me on record dates and everything like that, jazz record dates. Yeah. At that time, I was also doing a lot of studio work because I worked with Herbie Mann up through 1966 and decided that I wanted to come off the road. I had gotten married in 1965. And I didn't like being on the road, you know, away from my brand new wife. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So I'm going to just play a little bit of this um, uh, Olean visit. Oh, wow. Yeah.
<laughs> because said, I can. As soon as it came back, on, you said, "That's I hard." Can think back, it was a hard, hard <laughs> series of songs that Jackie wrote, and he gave it to me on the record, at on the, the date. date. Wow, at the date. So you were reading that? Yeah. Wow. And the forms were tricky yeah, the form too. was strange. I yeah. think it beat me up too. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, I think it beat me up. <laughs> you know, I got whipped. <laughs> well, it doesn't sound like it. it. Doesn't sound like. It. I guess you, you know, you 1967 and you I, were ready. I think the, the I have to go back a few years because 1964 Donald Byrd did an album I'm trying to get home with big band and he put me in the trumpet section with Snooky Young, Ernie Royal, Clark Terry. That was a tremendous learning experience for me. I mean, I worked with lots of people then. I mean, yeah. by 1964, I spent time with Lionel Hampton, with Slide Hampton, and with Hank Crawford. Mm -hmm. And I had even worked with Mingus at that time, by 64. So, uh, I mean, it's interesting that you went to learning, because it's one of the topics that I thought would be significant to ask you since you've been such an important teacher to so many musicians, mm -hmm. but that you learned from being there in the middle of it. Yes. Would you say that is That's the case? true. Did you go to music school? No. So it's just... After the high school of music and art, mm -hmm. my parents didn't have the money to send me to the Juilliard School of Music or mm -hmm. the Manhattan School of Music. Yeah. So I just stayed out of school and I practiced. And at that time I was practicing seven, eight hours every day. I'd go down to Birdland, 52nd Street and Broadway, mm -hmm. get home at four o'clock in the morning, nine o'clock in the morning, I was up practicing. Mm -hmm. And I'd practice throughout the whole day. What part of New York did you live in at Bronx, that time? Bronx, in the uh -huh. Bronx. 168th Street. So how would you get up there at four Subway. in the morning? Subway was already. Yeah, Subway, yeah. Wow. Really fantastic it's also i'd imagine you correct me if i'm wrong um hearing that music and those musicians around you that's and just exactly, reacting that's what growing up in new york was really mm. about mm -hmm. the people that i could hear and dave let me tell you the, the, the wonderful story so i used to go to birdland like i said the original birdland 52nd street and broadway mm -hmm. And I'd have to pay my dollar twenty-five cents to get in. They had a place where young people could sit at one or two tables, and they would just give us soft drinks. We would be able to order soft drinks. But I had been coming so many times. My whole thing was to go and sit in that area, then to go to where the bathroom was go to the bathroom, then when I came out the bathroom, I went along the bar mm -hmm. to the end of the bar where I could look right at the band. Mm -hmm. And the manager 
of the club, Johnny Gary, he was the bartender. And he used to let me stay there because he knew I wasn't going to drink anything. And finally, he became the manager of Birdland. And I'll never forget the day when he told Pee Wee Marquette and the people, listen, when the kid comes, you let him in. <laughs> so I didn't have to pay that $1.25. So you heard everybody. That's right. I would go to hear Art Blakey. Every year I'd hear Count Basie's band at Christmas time. You know? Wow. Yeah. And this is so, before I was 18, you know. But learning by osmosis then. Yes. Essentially. Mm-hmm. And having Jackie Byard put that piece of music in front of you. <laughs> well, that too. But one of the things was uh, being able to see Lee Morgan and Freddie Hubbard. They were both five years older than me. They're born in 1938. Mm -hmm. I'm born in 1943. Uh -huh. And boy, to hear them and hear what they could do and what I could not do at that time. And I'm not even talking about thinking about We're it. talking about early talking, 60s, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm talking about being able to execute mm -hmm. just what they did. Mm. So, I mean, I, I was sitting in front of my record player, and at the time, there were no modern technology like now, so I had to drop the needle, listen for whatever, take my horn and learn how to play what they was on the record. And I guess you heard them probably play together a lot, too. The, the two I really didn't hear them play too much together uh -huh. at that time. Because they did the, what was that they record called? They did that called? record called The Cookers. The Cookers, yeah. yeah. Out yeah. at the club in Brooklyn. Wow. I wasn't there that night, but I had that record as soon as it came out. Yeah, and Freddie, both of them yeah. at the peak right. of their... Uh, well. Pete LaRocca was on that, and yeah. Big Black was on it. Mm -hmm. uh, James Spaulding. It was a great, wow. That was a great recording. That was a great night. The, yeah. They played so wonderfully, the audience was just right in their hands. You remember hearing Woody Shaw at that time, too? Yeah, well, I remember hearing Woody Shaw before everybody heard of the name Woody Shaw. There was a composer and a pianist by the name of Hank Johnson. Mm -hmm. Hank Johnson went to Juilliard, and he would have jam sessions where we would go up to Juilliard. This is when Juilliard was at 120th Street in Broadway. Mm-hmm. And uh, we would have jam sessions with Hank. Well, this particular day, this guy came in this really big jacket and sat in with us. And he took out his horn and played such hellified stuff that we all said, what's your name? He said, Woody. I'm Woody. Woody Shaw. And by that time, he had had Fats Navarro down. Huh. He had been listening to Fats Navarro and had all of those runs and everything. This down. would be around 1962, 63, uh, maybe? It was, it was probably much earlier than that. Oh. I think it was 59, 60. 
So and he was a era, young, young man yeah, at that time. Yeah. Because I think his first recordings were around He's born 65. in 45. Uh-huh. You know. So he's two years younger, younger than, than you. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's so much music going on. And then so much changed so quickly. That's true. I have a record of yours from 1970 that I want to excerpt. Mm-hmm. I think the record was called Jimmy Owens. Right. And this uh, is a, a composition no, no, of no, yours. That, that, Go that, ahead. That, that was 60... Oh. I'm talking about a different you, one. You're talking about no escaping it. No escaping it, it yeah. with three exclamation points. Right. <laughs> and then, so the, you wrote this piece called Put It All Together. Oh, yeah. And that was Billy Cobham played drums on that. Album, Howard Johnson, great yeah, band, uh, and this is only considering it's really only three years after that Kenny Barron right, date. That's right. So a lot has changed. Mm-hmm. Um, I had made a lot of records in between too mm-hmm. with people. Yeah, yeah. I guess this is your first actual record as a leader. No escaping it. If you consider well, you well, had better listen yeah, as, a co-leader as a co-leader with Kenny yeah, Barron, right? This is, right. right. And I remember I was involved with the negotiation for that record. And the guy who was in charge of Polydor Records at that time mm-hmm. liked me, liked the way I played. So the contract was easy. And, and I got as a, far as the material, you had I freedom. Wrote, I wrote all of the material, uh-huh. you know. Uh, I was a lot different than the Atlantic record date because I got an advance. I remember I got $10,000, which mm-hmm. at that time, that was a hell of a lot of money, mm. you know? But also there's a lot of like studio production. Right. It's not just a document of a band playing. It's you guys in the studio right. with but we rehearsed distorted guitars. And had and, uh-huh. we, had, we had all of that together. You know? I'm going to... I, I love hearing your reaction to all these various tracks, so I'm going to play a few things in a rapid succession. Mm-hmm. But there's one band that you were in that I'm just really 
curious about. So let me just play a little bit of this band called Ars Nova. Ars Nova, you were in this band. Yeah, this with is 1968. Uh huh. And they wanted a trumpet player. They auditioned Randy Brecker, and then they auditioned me, and I got the job. Were they based in New York? Or? Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we recorded for Atlantic. They had recorded a record before that on another label before I was in the band. I don't even know who played trumpet if there was a trumpet at that time. Mm. Wow. So they build themselves as a mix of uh, rock, classical, and folk music. Mm -hmm. And not every jazz musician that I have met has played in those contexts. (laughs) Right. 
it seems like a long time ago and 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 for 1968 but for genres to be colliding like that mm-hmm. was sort of a well, you, you know, don't see blood, it sweat, much. and tears uh-huh. was in, around at that time, mm. and what they were doing was very, very well known. We weren't as known. We were trying to get there, and it was very eclectic. Mm-hmm. The minds of the people in the band as to music, the kinds of music that they had all played. Sam Brown was the guitarist. He was a big recording guitarist on many, many dates. Mm -hmm. And we used to see each other quite often on record dates, Mm. you know. Mm -hmm. And then John and Wyatt, they wrote all of these songs. Yeah, yeah. That's great. Um, We mentioned Billy Cobham a little while ago, Mm -hmm. and you played on this record of his called Spectrum. Yeah. Spectrum, yeah. Jan Hammer. Mm-hmm. So again in seven. Yes. Wow. So how did you, you know Billy Cobham just from being in the city or? Well, Billy you did and a lot I went to school oh, I see. together, the high school of music and art. Now, he was not a music major. Mm-hmm. He was an art major. And he was a one year behind me. So after graduating from high school, which was 1961, he wound up eventually having to go into the service. But did he write all of that music for, for the at record? That, at that particular time, he did. He yeah. did. Wow. But he, he went into the service, and then when his three years or whatever it was was up, 
group that I was in at that time called the New York Jazz Sextet mm -hmm. needed a drummer. So I said, well, listen, why don't we get Billy Cobham to play? And uh, eventually we did. And it was very exciting. Okay, the New York Jazz Sextet was put together by Tom McIntosh, mm -hmm. trombonist. And at that time, it had Benny Golson in it, mm -hmm. and myself, Roland, Hannah, Ron Carter, and Billy Cobble. Mm -hmm. We did only college concerts. We had a classical agency that booked us and summer's management, and we would travel all over the United States doing college concerts. And we were getting pretty good money at that time compared to other jazz groups. And you were also branching into like more electronic sounds, more electric music at mm, the same time. In a way, yeah. Well, I mean, what's the use? Yeah. Remember this?
that was your A&M Horizon record, mm-hmm. you said. Right. Beautiful playing. Well, it was a lot of fun making that record. I did Caravan. Mm-hmm. Right. And most of it was geared towards an R&B feeling. You know, I have always been the kind of person that I believed in my heritage. And anything in my heritage, if I liked, I felt that I should be able to play. Unlike some musicians that came along and they were very pure. Oh, that's not jazz. Mm -hmm. That's rock and roll. That's this or that, you know, even that's bossa nova. That's not jazz. I just play jazz. Well, that wasn't me at all. Mm-hmm. I believed mm-hmm. in playing everything that came from the jazz heritage of African American music. And you have been. Right. All mm-hmm. along. Mm hmm. Um, brings me to the sort of the activist side of Jimmy mm-hmm. Owens, which, from what I understand, started out very early in your career as well. Mm hmm. There was the collective black artist. Right. That was 1969. Uh-huh. It was put together by Reggie Workman, myself, Stanley Cowell, a number of other people. And um, we put that group together to, and started a big band, wrote music for the big band, various people, and to do concerts to kind of set our own destiny instead of waiting for record companies to possibly sign us, Mm -hmm. which most of the time did not happen. Yeah, but it's also, you talk about heritage and and where the music is culturally coming from and um, all of everything. When you went on to serve for NISCA, New York State Council Mm -hmm. on the Arts, and the National Endowment at its inception, basically, um, in the service of, of, of that. Right. That's uh, the kind of thing that I felt was important for me to take the knowledge that I had gained over the years to help the jazz musician community. Right. And would you say that taking the position at the new school like you did, and you are still here, um, that that's do you feel like that's part of your activism? Well, yes. Uh, more so being on the board of directors of various organizations, being a part of uh, starting programs like the Jazz Musician Emergency Fund mm-hmm. for the Jazz Foundation of America, that that organization has helped hundreds and hundreds of musicians who were in need. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's one of my most favorite Mm -hmm. of the things that I've been involved with. I mean, the collective black artist was fine, but we weren't powerful enough to make real changes. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. the Jazz Foundation of America between having a board of directors of people who were outside of jazz, more so inside of Wall Street, Mm -hmm. to help build this organization. 
Well, all of this involvement that you're talking about, I think, is one of the reasons that we're celebrating you in our trumpet festival this year, Festival of New Trumpet Music. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because the, the whole goal is to support the music and to mm-hmm. celebrate it and keep it alive and keep it strong. And if anybody is emblematic of that, it's you, sir. Thank you. Well, we're very grateful. Um, boy, I wanted to ask about so many other things about... Well, we talked about a lot of trumpet players, didn't we? Yeah, some. Is there anybody else oh, that we haven't named? So that, many. I mean, of course, Louis Armstrong and Roy Eldridge and Dizzy. And yeah, well, uh, don't forget Jabbo Smith. Okay. <laughs> Jabbo Smith was a hell of a trumpet player. And he was uh, eight years younger than Louis Armstrong. So Louis was making waves playing the way he was playing. Mm-hmm. And Jabo had some fast fingers. Mm. So he was able to play up and down the horn real fast. Okay. Anybody else? Well, or you know. Later it was, generations? It was, mm-hmm. it was Donald Byrd. Uh-huh. Like yeah. I said, you know, he took me under his wing when I was 14, 15 yeah. years old. Yeah. I had been playing four years, you know. Uh, and then... One of the first flugelhorn players was Wilbur Harden. Hmm. He had a wonderful little sound, and he had a, a little bastard flugelhorn. Hmm. It looked different than everyone else's. Hmm. And uh, his sound on the horn was magnificent. And he was uh-huh. a good trumpet player, a good flugelhornist. Yeah. You, are yeah. you familiar I with Wilbur? I noticed that you, well, I've, I've, I've heard some. I'm going to yeah. go listen some more now mm-hmm. that I'm... You telling me all this? I've seen those pictures of you with well, your flugel. Well, I started you to had play rotary valve, rotary flugel, valve flugel in 1960. Uh huh. I was right. in high school still, and I I used to play a besson uh, flugelhorn, French besson. But I never liked having to reach over the bell to play the valves. Right. And. I had to have some work done on my horn, so I had taken it to Bob Giardinelli. Mm-hmm. And on the wall in the case, he had this rotary valve flugelhorn. So I said, hey, man, can I try that? So he took it down, and he, and he told me, oh, no, your mouthpiece won't fit in it, my flugelhorn mouthpiece for the French best. He says it won't fit in it, it's too small. Mm. I said, oh, you have to play it with this mouthpiece. So I put it up to my lips and played the first note, and it said, whoa. <laughs> I said, how much is this? <laughs> he said, uh, $100. I reached in my pocket and pulled out $100 and bought the horn right then and there. Wow. You know? Serendipity. Yeah. And I played that horn yeah. from that day on. You still I have it? My, Oh, sure. I wow. had that first one. Yeah. Wow, great. And so I played that horn through 1968. Mm-hmm. And then I put together this band for Dizzy Gillespie for concerts in Europe, three weeks of concerts. But I had taken time out to get some gigs, and 
I went to the factory that made this horn in Mainz, Germany, and I had them make me a horn. Great. A four-valve flugelhorn. Nice. That the father of Alexander Band Instruments made that horn for me. So that was wow. 1968 with four vowels. Beautiful. So I saw this quote of yours where you said, jazz is the heartbeat of the world. Mm-hmm. Yes, I've always felt that. In all of my travels to foreign countries, every time great jazz is played, the people really come together. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for, <laughs> thank you. for joining me and sharing the wisdom. Um, I'm going to go listen and practice. And <laughs> we'll see you practice. on September 8th. September 8th. Beautiful. I'm looking you, forward Jimmy. to it. <laughs> thank you, Dave.